You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Sarah Hoffman. Sarah co-founded Maker Wine along with her co-founder Kendra. Maker Wine works with independent winemakers to bring you their premium wines in a can. Enjoy my conversation with Sarah. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Hey Ryan, thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat about wine. Well, this is uh, really great having you here. So I think first before we get into your brand and all the fun wine stuff. Let's just talk briefly about your background and your life before you got into wine professionally. Sure. Um, yeah, I have absolutely no background in the wine industry. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. I was actually a psychology and a neuroscience major, but pivoted after school to tech, um, specifically working in performance marketing. Um, at several tech companies around the Bay Area for the longest period, Eventbrite, a ticketing platform that wants to connect um, people through events. And um, then went to Stanford Business School where I met my co-founder, Kendra, and can definitely get into to how we started Maker, but we definitely came at it from um, the side of being wine lovers. <laughs> Yeah, so performance marketing, is that doing like Google AdWords and different Facebook marketing or how? what encompasses that? Yeah, exactly. It's, um, you know, it, it really is um, paid marketing and other acquisition activities to try to acquire customers for your brand. And I think what I really loved about that was it really stimulated that scientist quantitative side of me of, you know, being able to set up experiments and, and run those through, but also really, um, you know, the brand marketing, messaging, psychology side of how to speak to people, um, how to, you know, really provide a benefit. So kind of bringing those two things together has been um, what I really love. Yeah, that's really interesting. Sometimes I hear about A-B testing and all the different things that goes into growth marketing and and building a brand. So when you were at Stanford, do you have any interesting stories or thoughts about 
some of the case studies that you did or just how maybe it changed the way you thought about business in general. I, you know, I think about like, uh, is it Phil Knight? I think he, part of it is named after him. And he, he, there's a book called Shoe Dog, which was really interesting. Sometimes it's interesting to go back and look at some of these case studies, but just your overall experience there, what, you know, how was that? The experience is amazing. And I think, um, you know, most people will say it's not necessarily about the classwork or the or the individual cases, but just the people that you meet there from all over the world that are incredibly motivated and talented and that just sort of fires to do big things and to think bigger. So I think surrounding myself with those types of people, like my co-founder Kendra, who I met, um, you know, we were very like yin and yang and complement each other's strengths and weaknesses was the biggest thing I took away. Um, and then that's also where I had the space to explore wine as a hobby. Yeah, exactly. And as you talked about, you know, meeting Kendra and we're going to get into the brand and kind of, uh, when you guys decided to launch and everything but so yeah talk about your experience just coming into wine just you know learning about wine and and drinking wine sometimes people will tell stories about going to trader joe's and buying buying some cheap bottles of wine or you know people have different stories about how they came to wine yeah definitely i mean um for us kendra and i actually met as wine friends at Stanford. Um, and for us, we loved traveling around to small producers, you know, all within a few hours drive of the Stanford campus. Um, so from Santa Cruz Mountains to Sonoma to Mendocino um, to Lodi, we really got to know all of these wine regions um, and meet these fantastic people and hear their stories. And that's really what we were passionate about. Um, but then going to shop around campus and looking for these bottles, we didn't find some of those same bottles in stores. And I think that that disconnect and trying to figure out, you know, where we could support these small producers and people led to really learning about the wine industry and figuring out that um, a lot of these small producers have a really tough time getting to retail shelves and that people don't always know um, you know, who they're supporting when they buy a bottle. And that really led us to start thinking, you know, how can we surface these stories and these people in fun, approachable ways? I think, uh, for me at least, definitely um, had felt intimidated by wine in the past and about my own wine education knowledge and, like, how can we share these amazing wines in a way that is approachable and down-to-earth, like you were visiting the winemaker and not in a way that makes you feel uneducated or, or that it's not for you. Yeah, th- that makes so much sense. I mean, I think when people first get into wine, it can be very intimidating. You have these point scores and you're trying to figure out, you know, what, what tastes good and what's a good value. And then you also have a lot of big brands who have come into the space and bought up smaller labels so it's it's for people who want to support smaller wineries they're they're trying to figure out um kind of that aspect so you guys are solving a lot of uh issues within the wine space from serving size to you know connecting with smaller producers to all all types of things sustainable kind of um packaging and things so we're going to get into all this but 
first let's now that we're up to present day here <laughs> talk about uh, as far as you know launching of, of maker let's get into when you first launched maker with kendra and really what you set out to do yeah so um when kendra and i decided to launch maker our goal was really to find um off the beaten path places grapes people, uh, small producers with really interesting stories and amazing wines to highlight. Um, we wanted to partner with them, can their wines in a beautiful, approachable, single-serving format and sell them direct-to-consumer um, to our, our, our growing audience in California and eventually beyond. Um, I think that we really want to make wine great wine approachable to everyone and support real small producers in the process. I think our ultimate goal is really to be a new distribution channel for these small wineries and to grow with them and then also be an amazing place to discover small wineries for our customers and, and also bring new people into wine. Yeah, and the serving size is one of the aspects that I find really interesting and it's a great part of the offering. Talk about that, how the serving size is about, let's see, 250 milliliters, which is a third of a bottle, Um, and how that's just a a nice serving size for even for one person or sharing for two people. So one of the issues with wine is, you know, there's Corvin and there's some other things that have tried to solve solve for this. But let's say you want to start with a white wine or start with a sparkling wine and move on to a red. It can be tough to do that when you're popping open a whole bottle. Totally. And I definitely loved hearing that um, you got to experience that benefit as well. Um, but yeah, we, we test absolutely everything. We're sort of uh, uh, maniacal about it. And, um, we've tested several different sizes. Actually, the first wine can that I ever had was the 375 milliliter, which is the soda size can, um, which as you probably know is half a bottle. And if you don't realize that's half a bottle and you start drinking it, um, it can, it can, you know, be a, a little too much really fast. Um, and beyond it being a little too much wine, by the time you finish that wine, it's, it's gotten warm in your hand. Um, so we, we personally really loved the 250 milliliter size, uh, the consumer data and the tests that we ran definitely saw that that was, um, the, the preferred size, but up until recently, I'm not sure if you knew this, um, the, you couldn't sell the 250 milliliter size individually in retail. It actually had to be sold as a three pack as like a true bottle equivalent size. Um, so yeah, and so that was just a sort of legacy law that, you know, hadn't hadn't been updated. That's since been changed, but that that's partly why I think you see much more of the 375 milliliter size. Yeah, the laws around alcohol, as you well know, and for entrepreneurs in the space, can be one of the barriers to entry and just one of the more aggravating things. Uh, was that something that was tough for you to navigate for you and, and Kendra, or was it something you were able to manage? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we really aim to educate in everything that we do. So I think sharing how tough some of these laws are for small producers, how expensive it is for them to ship wine, etc., has been a big part of what we do. Um 
and uh, like right now, for example, we're we're only in California, and that's partly because um, you know designing how to how to take your business national in wine is is tough. But I think it's also been an, a really awesome silver lining for us because with just focusing in California, we've been able to really focus on the product, build out our club, built this really tight, amazing community here. Um, you know, our our Can Club crew texts us every day. We have really awesome intimate Zooms with the winemakers um, leading tastings of their wines. Uh, and I think that, you know, if we'd been yeah, in 40 plus states from day one, it, it may have been a little less focused. So we've definitely used this opportunity to really get educated and um, build this awesome audience before we scale. So you actually had a side hobby doing beer reviews and going around tasting and trying different beers. Talk about that and how that led you down the path of thinking, oh, well, you know, how about doing a canned wine? Yeah, definitely. My, my first love was definitely craft beer. Um, and you know, I've, I was a home brewer. I used to run an underground supper club in San Francisco where I'd pair my own beers with a friend's dishes who was a chef, uh, used to travel writing about craft beer really more for myself. But, um, you know, I think a few things from that experience, one, I really loved the community and the voice in beer. It was really open to experimentation and trying new things and just, you know, um, building an awesome voice and community, which I really appreciated. And in doing the the supper club experience, I, I sort of saw firsthand the impact of story on someone's experience of consuming food or beverage. Um, you know, we would, if we took the time to really explain the producer's story behind the beer or why we picked a certain pairing and how it was important to us, we really saw people's faces light up and really enjoy the exact same food or, or beverage in a, in a different way. Um, and I think a combination of that and working at Eventbrite and events helped me really understand like the power of experience and story and context. And I think that's especially true in wine. Um, and it seems like such an amazing opportunity to really connect you um, when you're drinking a can of wine to be able to read about the maker story on the back, to put a face to the product, to understand why they chose a certain technique or a certain variety. Um, so I think I think that really influenced me there. And, and on the can side, I mean, that's how I first heard about the can van, who we partner with now to actually can the wines. They you know, do most of their business in craft beer and had, had seen them at, at breweries around the Bay area. Um, and I, I definitely remember thinking, you know, back far before business school, someone should do that for wine, um, show up to wineries and, and can their wines and, um, you know, have them in a much more, uh, approachable, easy to take anywhere format. And a couple of years later, we, we came back to that idea. Yeah, and on the website you talk about how different uh, ways, kind of serving ideas for the wine. So, you know, recommend uh, chilling the wine and pouring in a in a glass if you have one. But you also talk about you're not wine snobs, and if you're out in a picnic or you know over by the pool or something, crack open the can and just enjoy it like that. 
Um, I thought that was that was really cool too. So we're going to get into each of these wines here, but before we do that, let's focus a little bit on the producers. Um, and you touched on it already, but I think for people getting into wine, you know, it can be very abstract. You're you're in the grocery store, you're you're ordering from online or however you're you're doing it, and you know you you get it and you're you're enjoying the wine with friend you know with friends or with food or people have kind of different rituals but it's sometimes hard to make that connection as you mentioned with the actual producer and that's one thing that you and your co-founder are doing really well and i think as an extension from the craft beer community as as you talked about i think i really saw that amongst some of the the craft beer producers about um, kind of forming that community and then being able to connect to actually go down to the brewery and uh, oftentimes they're making it there on site or or it's like a kind of a small batch kind of production thing um, so talk about some of the producers and how you were able to connect with them and, and as an extension, connect you know, them with your uh, customers. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, back to when we were in school, Kendra and I, as I mentioned, were traveling all over, visiting these wineries um, and really at first just trying to understand their pain points, learn um you know, what they were struggling with, how we could help. And we definitely learned more about, um, you know, the difficulty in selling through traditional channels. Uh, We learned that, you know, many times there are one or two or three person shows that, you know, are the best at their craft and winemaking, but don't necessarily have time for the packaging, the marketing, the distribution pieces. Um, And then also really wanting to reach new and, and younger audiences. And so that's that's really what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and, and through those initial meetings, we ended up meeting our first three producer partners, uh, Chris Christensen at Bodkin Wines, uh, Anna and Gary at Camp Evita, and um, Colleen Clothier at, at Revolution. And, um, you know, they've definitely become like family. I think, uh, you know, and, and moving forward, sourcing has become a huge part of what we do. We're constantly meeting new small producers. We get um, tens of samples every month. And um, our process for selecting new makers is actually pretty interesting. Um, we typically start with, you know, a grape or a region that we're excited about. And as we, as we meet more producers, if we have a sample that we're really excited about, I think I mentioned I'm not a sommelier. <laughs> um, we will send those samples through two different panels. We do one through our like can club customer panel. So these are our very best customers and they have varying, um, you know, wine expertise. And we like to say we have the palate of our customers. So kind of the average um, intermediate wine drinker palate. And then we have an industry expert panel made up of people that we've met along the way from, you know, retail buyers to sommeliers to, um, you know, wine critics and judges that, that try these samples blind and give us feedback. And if a sample passes both of these panels, um, and we're really excited about the partnership and the story, and, you know, we tend to try to highlight um, people with different voices in wine from diverse backgrounds, from diverse regions, uh, that, then that's when we get really excited about potentially a new maker partnership. Yeah, that's one thing that I found really cool 
is the diversity among the, the winemakers and also some of the interesting varietals that you're offering. So um, before we get into the wines, I wanted to just touch on the branding and how you were able to kind of think about that and go through that design process, because that's one thing that really sets you apart from other brands. And it's something that you can look at different, uh, you know, direct to consumer brands. Brightland comes to mind where they have this beautiful packaging um, and they sell olive oil. Um, you know, there's others that come to mind, but talk about the branding and how you were able to kind of envision that and make it come to fruition. Yeah, we got so, so lucky in the very early days. Um, we found a designer on Pinterest who had done these craft beer concept cans, actually. Um, and I, I thought that they were very premium and modern looking and playful and really great use of color. Um, and I reached out to her and she um, took a chance on us, you know, and she did our first few can designs and really worked with us given that we were all students with absolutely zero budget. <laughs> um, and now she still does, her name's Olivia Herrick and she has an incredible uh, Instagram following where she posts a lot of her designs if people are curious. Um, and she is a very collaborative process. She works with, um, the winemaker and myself to design a, a label that really reflects their story. Um, so you may have noticed, for example, our Chenin Blanc is highlighting Colin and Clothier from um, Revolution Wines, an urban winery in Sacramento. So we did the Sacramento city skyline on her can. Um, Alice is an artist uh, and she actually drew the label for her Cabernet, which is you know, her hand um, actually painting on the can. Um, so each of these cans is really reflective of the maker story, but all fits um, within a cohesive brand. And I have no idea how she does it. It's <laughs> crazy to make all of these different stories look like they go together, but also have their own sort of um, spirit. But yeah, we're definitely not one of those brands that, you know, spent thousands and thousands of dollars on, um design or brand identity, but we always get complimented on it. And I think it's all about finding the right partners that really believe in, in your mission and um, uh, can work with you. Yeah. So let's get into some of these wines. You have a lot that are available on the website. We're going to get into how people can purchase, whether they just want to buy kind of individual packs or join the club the can club. Um, but just looking here, the Cabernet Sauvignon, Viognier and Pinot Noir, they're all sold out. It you, looks like you can join the wait list. Um, let's just touch briefly on these before we get into the, the wines that are available. Yeah, definitely. Um, so they've definitely been a few of our most popular wines. They, um, we actually are canning the next vintage of the Cabernet Sauvignon with Alice Sutro in a month. So that will that one will be back very soon. Um, the Pinot will also be back this summer. Uh, and yeah, those are very, it was interesting because those are two of our very premium red wines. And at the time, you know, it was really an experiment for us. Can we do um, Alice Sutro's, you know, 
ultra premium $50 plus a bottle Alexander Valley cab in a can. Um, and will people want to pay for that, um, in a can, you know, that, that can is a $15 can. Um, and we, we were blown away by the response. People really want to have like a special occasion, beautiful glass and a half of wine. Um, and that's actually, you know, been, uh, a huge learning for us is that is really leaning into these amazing premium reds. And, um, so we're really excited about those two partnerships. Yeah, I think it's amazing how you're able to offer such a really high quality wine. And as we talked about in a because I know for me, um, whether I'm drinking with a friend or someone else, or even if I'm just alone, you know, I don't, I'm hesitating to sometimes open a full bottle just because, you know, then I have to almost plan my meals out. Like, okay, if I'm opening a Pinot, I'm going to have to drink this over the next three days or, or, you know, whatever the case is. And sometimes, as we talked about, maybe you want to start with a glass of white and then have a, a glass of red with your meal or a sparkling or whatever the case. So I think that is a really interesting kind of innovative take that you're you're going down there and as you mentioned i think people are warming up to the fact that okay whether it's in a can or a a kind of the old school bottle with a cork um it doesn't really matter wine has so many traditions and being able to break through kind of the the snobbery aspect or the the old traditions i think is a really uh a, a shift that needs to happen totally so let's get into some of the wines here that are available. So I was able to taste through all these wines. Awesome. Um, and they were, <laughs> yeah, they were, they were really, really awesome wines. And uh, the really cool part that we can get, get into more, which you already touched on, is just the individual producers. And you send out um, cards you know, showing all about them. And people can also read on the website. But it really makes that connection, as we talked about, between the actual producer and the wine that you're drinking, the wine that you hold in your hand, um, which I think is really neat. So let's first start with the whites, and then we can um, move to the uh, all the way down to to the reds. So uh, first off, the uh, the 2020 Chenin Blanc. Um, so this one, as described on the website, zippy, zesty white wine, notes of lemon balm, jasmine, and white peach. So people can kind of get an idea there. And just a quick aside, I think. One thing that will be really interesting to see going forward is how people warm up to some of the unique uh, and lesser known varietals. So as we just <laughs> talked about, Cab and Pinot, they're always going to be classic. They're always going to be a, the go-to, you know, and they both taste, you know, really, really good. So it's no surprise of why they pop, why they are so popular, but we're going to get into a couple lesser known. And we mentioned the Viognier, which, which some people may not know, but Chenin Blanc, let's, let's get into that one. Yeah, so for our first two white wines, we started with Chenin Blanc and Viognier, which, as you might, as you pointed out, um, is pretty unusual for particularly a canned wine company. Um, you'll often see Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc or, or a blend. Um, and I think we really wanted to show that we were doing things differently and wanted to educate around new grapes and help introduce people to new things. And um you know that, and we've we've really been excited to see that that hypothesis was correct, and people are are really excited about that. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to do Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. Um, you know, those are 
wonderful grapes and we're actually sourcing a few of them right now. Um, but I think that it really just adds to the story piece. If we can find someone doing something unique that's special, you know, we want to highlight that. Yeah, and for people who haven't tried it, Chenin Blanc is often mentioned as a great pairing with uh, whether it's Thai food, Chinese food, things like that, Asian dishes, even spicier foods like uh, Indian foods. So sometimes mentioned along with Riesling. So Chenin Blanc, often from the Loire Valley in France, um, it's it can be a great pairing with a lot of different foods. Is there any foods that you like you like to pair the specific wine with? Yeah, well, we we've been talking a lot about the Chenin Blanc and oysters. We actually um, uh, when we first heard about Colleen over at Revolution, she had been written up for having um, an amazing wine to pair with oysters. Um, so you know that that's really the the go-to for the team over there, and I've actually taken a few cans of Chenin Blanc over to Point Reyes and Inverness, um, and you know snuck it in my pocket to do some oyster tasting, and I can definitely confirm that it is a uh, a great pairing. It has this wonderful uh, minerality and almost like saltiness that like pairs really really well with. Um, with oysters and it's just this like beautiful, bright, fresh, crisp, um, you know, summer day shucking oyster pairing. That sounds amazing. I, I've actually been to Point Reyes before. Uh, so next time I go, I'll have to take your suggestion there. But for people who haven't, that sounds like a really, uh, a really fun um, afternoon. And uh, you bring the canned wine along uh, with you. So as talked about, you can actually go to the website and we're going to link this stuff in the show notes, but there's a little area called Meet the Maker. So Colleen Clothier, she makes wines at Revolution. So people can go in and kind of read about all the different winemakers. So she's the winemaker on that particular wine. Um, and as you mentioned, a lot of your work is actually going out and not only sourcing varietals, but f- finding winemakers who work with particular vineyards and, and things like that. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. So next we'll go into the sparkling soft blanc. Yeah, that's a really, really fun wine. Um, so Chris Christensen at Bodkin Wines, um, we partnered with him on both the sparkling soft blanc and the sparkling rosé. And um, he, again, was one of our first partners, and we've now done three different Maker Wines with him. He's, like, part of the team. Um, He also has incredible experience with cans, so he often consults with some of our new winemakers to to help give can pointers if if any are needed. (laughs) Um, And uh, this is really Chris's signature wine, Sparkling Sauvignon Blanc. It's what he's really known for. Um, at Bodkin, he is, um, um, you know, he's, he's actually originally from the Midwest, came out, uh, to California, was completely self-taught winemaker, actually also went to Stanford undergrad, which is how we were first, uh, connected to him and, um, really known for beautiful, innovative, sparkling and, and rosé wines, um, he describes it as uncommon wines from common varietals. Um, 
Sparkling Sauv Blanc was really intriguing to him after working a harvest in uh, New Zealand. He actually was also recently named Wine Enthusiast 40 Under 40 as the Bubbles Innovator. Um, and I think Sparkling Sauv Blanc in a can definitely fits under that title. Um, and he was so pumped to put his Sparkling Sauv Blanc uh, in a can and see how it would work in that format. Uh, and we were all blown away. Um, the carbonation really, you know, focuses this incredible lemon, lime, citrus, passion fruit flavors. And it's the most, um, like thirst quenching, like light citrus, citrusy, um, beautiful beverage there is. We like to call it the white claw killer because it's, you know, it's a hundred percent Sauvignon Blanc but it really tastes like, you know, a light airy spritzer or is like really great to, um, to, to sip really in any occasion. So it's been really neat to see him almost transcend the genre of wine on this, on this can. Yeah. That's a really cool way of describing it is the white claw killer. <laughs> um, for people who don't know, they can look into his background, and I believe he was the first to actually do a sparkling Sauv Blanc. Is that right? Or at least in California? Yeah, he's credited as the first American to do a sparkling Sauv Blanc. Yeah, so really cool history there. And for people who want to try something unique, um, definitely check that out. So next, let's get into the sparkling rosé, which I'm seeing is, is a dry rosé, which I always prefer um, to have less of that residual sugar. So talk about that one. Definitely. And so all of our wines are, you know, dry, fermented to dry. Um, this wine is unusual in that there's zero dosage added, which, you know, so very, very dry for a sparkling wine, um, zero grams of residual sugar. Um, and it's this really electric pink color. And so you're almost expecting it to be sweet, or really heavy, but it's the exact opposite of that. It's super dry, light, citrus, um, berry flavors, definitely like Sauvignon Blanc aromatics. Um, and this wine is a super unique rosé as well. It's um, actually a blend of several different components, including white and red components. So the base is actually Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, um, and the really, really bright, you know, uh, berry color is coming from Syrah, Petite Syrah, Rosé of Zen. Um, so it's a really unusual rosé. Um, Chris is really good at bringing together these different components and making them into something else entirely. Um, they're all sourced from small uh, family farmers in the Sonoma Coast, and it has been such a hit and crowd pleaser and is the perfect, you know, take anywhere with or without food. Um, great with brunch beverage. Yeah. And Rosé has gotten really popular in recent years. Um, and I like how you're kind of doing a twist on this one as far as the sparkling Rosé. So people should definitely check that out. The next one here is the uh, Rosé of Grenache which is made by a female winemaker, Nicole. Her name is from Santa Cruz. Um, the notes on this one just sound really good when you're when you're reading the notes. And I had a, a really fun 
time tasting this wine too. It was really unique. Rhubarb, guava, strawberries, and cream. Um, and this is also a single vineyard uh, rosé of Grenache. Um, let's let's get into this one here. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for calling out the notes. I write them usually with the winemakers, but as you can probably tell, they aren't super whiny. <laughs> Approachable. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like they're how I would write them um, or how, you know, a standard wine drinker would write them. And I actually tried to really keep that. So when we when I write something new, I've learned a lot more about wine over the past two years. Um, we definitely always read them to make sure we're not using words that we've learned that we wouldn't have known two years ago. Um, so that's kind of a, a funny side note. But no, I'm super excited about this wine and uh, the Cabernet Pfeffer, both of which we um, partnered with Nicole Walsh from Sarah Winery on. It's actually our latest partnership. We just canned these wines, so they're still brand new to us and we are drinking them every chance we get. Um, but that, like you said, the Rosé of Grenache is a single vineyard, um, from, uh, Monterey County. It is, Nicole describes it as what pink might taste like. It's like really light, beautiful, um, you know, like I mentioned strawberries and guava and really just this perfect summer drink. Um, and, and Nicole has a really awesome story. She actually grew up in Michigan um, has worked in wine all over the world and landed in Santa Cruz, really likes um, focusing on unique varieties, single vineyards that express like you know time and place. Um, and the, the sort of thread through all her wines is that she um, you know is lives on the ocean, is a surfer. She is really like loves the coastal influence that, you know, the, the cool climate, uh, cool coastal climate influence, um, on, on grapes and, and on wine. So all of her wines, um, if you look at, she has this giant map in her tasting room of all the vineyards that she sources from, and you can see what they all have in common is their proximity to the ocean and, um, really highlighting unique grapes and places, which is, you know, very much up our alley. Yeah, so next let's get into the Cab Pfeffer, which a lot of people may not have heard of this wine. I know I had not heard of this particular varietal, and what a really cool and interesting wine. So there's a lot to talk about here. I was I googled it, and I was reading that it looks like it might have been a cross uh, with another grape in Trousseau, uh, which I have had that varietal. Mm. Um, Arnott Roberts makes one that I had I'm trying to remember who else, but they're, they're not too many. Um, yeah. so, you know, for this particular varietal cab pfeffer, there's, there's only a, a very small amount of acreage even left available, um, for this, for this particular one. And so when you're looking at just on the website, it almost kind of reminded me of a Pinot in, in some ways. So cranberry, pomegranate, white pepper, um, and so, you know, as you describe on the website, ultra rare grape from hundred year old vines. So let's, let's get into this one. Yeah, this one's really fun and it's been such a hit that I can't even believe before we released it. We definitely like, we worried a lot about this one because we knew the wine tasted amazing, but we weren't sure if it would just be too unique, too esoteric for people that, it would be confusing. Um, 
but it's been such a hit and you know Nicole like I mentioned just has this love of finding and highlighting really unique wines from unique places and telling their story and Cabernet Pfeffer has definitely become one of her signatures uh she sources this from Wurtz Vineyard um you know out by Santa Cruz and Cienega Valley and it you know she was originally turned on to it and just fell in love with it um it's really unique if, if you taste it I'm curious to hear your thoughts it's people expect it to be like Cabernet Sauvignon because of the name I think um but we've had to really you know but it's it's really not like Cabernet Sauvignon at all um much you know um much lighter definitely has this like cranberry white pepper sort of spice Pfeffer actually means pepper in German, um, so that may, may be where that came from. And yeah, very little was known about this grape. Um, Nicole actually got DNA testing done on it. Um, originally, it was thought that it may be a cross between Cab Sauv and Zin, um, but that mm. turned out not to be true. And um, it's synonymous with a with a you know a rare French grape. Um, so. Yeah, it's 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 been really interesting to learn about to tell the story of this wine. Um, I, I I think I said on the the website, you know, if Cabernet Sauvignon is the life of the party, Cab Pfeffer is the intriguing mystery guest. You know, it, it's definitely delicate and light, but unfolds in your mouth with different layers of depth and intrigue. And there really is a lot going on in this wine. Um, so it's. It's a wine that I'd never heard of. It's a wine that I've never met anyone that heard of it, <laughs> but it's also this incredible canvas to get to tell a story and and to to tell Nicole's story. And um, uh, it's super special. We only did, um, you know, we did a very limited amount, and we'll, we we released it about a month ago, and we'll probably sell out of it in about a month. So if anyone wants to try it, I would definitely try it now. <laughs> Yeah, and on the website here, I'm seeing less than 10 acres of this obscure grape planted. So one thing I really enjoyed was just how rare it was when I was drinking it. I was like, wow, this is really cool. It's it's very rare. Um, and I had never heard of the varietal either, uh, as you mentioned, your experience with people. The way I would describe it, gosh, as you mentioned, you know, it's to me, it really wasn't very synonymous with a uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, more a um, Cabernet Franc, uh, sorry, Cab Franc, <laughs> or Cab mm-hmm. yeah, Cabernet Franc. So you get kind of the, the cherry notes and kind of the lighter body. Um, but almost, you know, I hate to say it was similar to a Pinot Noir because Pinot is, is kind of all its own. Like you kind of, you know it when you taste it, but kind of more in that style, lighter bodied, very chillable type red. Um, so people who gravitate to the more chillable red, who still want some body and a lot of flavor, as you mentioned, the peppery notes, I think this would be a really cool wine uh, to try. Yeah, and you know, it's, I think it's probably the first ever Cabernet Pfeffer in a can, so that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really cool milestone. And this uh, vineyard I'm seeing, the Wurtz Vineyard, is old vine, organic, dry farmed vineyard about 25 miles from monterey bay as i think you mentioned 
Um, and so that's one thing when people start getting into wine and especially smaller producers is just learning more about the vineyards and vineyard management. Um, one thing I learned in my winemaking journey is just the difference between the uh, wines on a trellis, sorry, <laughs> vines on a trellis, trellis trained or ones that are just head trained where uh, kind of the old school ones that are just standing on their own mm-hmm. um, from so many years. And as you talked about, some of these vineyards go back over 100 years. So there's a, there's a lot of history there. And some of the older vines can be dry farms. They don't need a lot of water. They don't need irrigation systems. So kind of learning about that aspect is really cool and interesting, too, I think, for people. I know it was for me. Yeah, um, we're. I mean, we're learning every day. That's been really one of the fun parts of of doing this, um, you know, as a team, we recently went down to uh, Paso Robles for the first time and 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 met um, some amazing producers and you know learned more about old vines in and you know and and that and that region and the history behind it and that customers and it's also the most you know fun job ever <laughs> yeah and so people will link this in the in the show notes here but people can go to the area of your website that shows um you know maker stories you call it so you can really dig into chris christensen as we talked about you know sutro and the story of cabernet and you even have a cool little uh, graphic here I'm seeing the white claw versus a white wine um, which I think you know if you did a blind tasting maybe, maybe you'd be surprised or maybe you, you wouldn't be surprised where you you would kind of figure the wine you would like the the wine better or the wine would taste better I guess depending on your definitely uh, your, your demographic but um, you know this has been great kind of reviewing over these wines let's talk briefly here about how people can get access to these wines the different options for purchasing and kind of what that looks like so um you know i know you offer individual formats you've got the mix packs um and then also the can club and you all you even offer you know for people who want to go into a brick and mortar you have some of those available too yeah definitely um the best way to experience maker is definitely through the can club it's, you know, 12 cans every 12 weeks, so very manageable amount, and you can skip or pause anytime. It's where we offer our, you know, rotating selection of these wines. So, for example, the Cabernet Pfeffer is actually only available through the Can Club right now because there's such a limited amount of it. We also have awesome maker events through our Can Club, um, We and we, you know, they, you get an, an awesome shipping and all that, so... Definitely recommend that. We are we do also have amazing retail partners um, in uh, in California as well as do corporate and group events. So we'll ship everyone six packs and tell the stories of these makers and and we'll have uh, one of our sommeliers walk through the wines and and create a really fun way to connect people right now. And if you don't live in California, we are expanding this summer to several more states. So definitely follow us on Instagram at Maker Wine if you want to be the first to know um, when we're we're going outside California. Very cool. And people can also take advantage of some of the other things you have. I saw there's a wine tasting and cookie baking kit, which looked really interesting. And you also offer, um, you know, experiences for 
for companies who want to kind of do team building exercises or even individuals? Maybe there's a birthday or a fun celebration. Yeah, so we um, we have a little form on our site. We send um, a six pack, which is equivalent of two bottles of wine, and we'll typically send three different wines in there um, to your entire group, and then we will organize a Zoom with one of our um, uh, virtual sommeliers that will tell the stories of the makers, share notes on the wines, and then also just create a fun environment. You know, I've I know a lot of us have Zoom fatigue, and I've definitely sat on a lot of virtual wine tastings that, you know, were a little bit dry. But I think what we try to do is really get everyone engaging with each other, having fun, um, you know, asking questions, talking, and um, really people have really given us awesome reviews about the experience. So definitely feel free to to get in touch with us or, or email me directly um, and would be happy to to help create something amazing for you. Sarah, this has been great. I think the last thing we usually close on is what are you drinking when you're not drinking wine? So it could be a craft beer, a cocktail, or even just coffee. But, uh, you know, what are you drinking when you're not reaching for a maker? Oh, man, what a fun question. I have so many answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I do still really love craft beer. I love um, sour beers as well as, you know, super, super stereotypically hoppy California IPAs. Um, also love just like a great Negroni. I think that is definitely my uh, go-to cocktail. And I haven't really had a, a cocktail in quite some time, but when bars open up, I'm excited to get get myself, you know, uh, a fancy cocktail for the first time in a while. Well, Sarah, I think that's a great suggestion for people. <laughs> that sounds good uh, to me. Uh, really appreciate having you on today. Thanks so much, Ryan. This was this was really fun, and I'm excited to continue to share our wines with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at goldenwestpod, or you can email us at goldenwestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.